If you were here last week, you'll recall that we focused on the honor of God's majestic fatherhood. And this morning we're going to focus again on these same verses, but we're going to take a slightly different view of these verses. Uh, Particularly today we're going to talk about the curse of careless worship. Now you may recall, and as you listened also to as uh, Lair read this morning, that the priests were basically despising uh, the name of God by the way they handled sacrifices at the temple. I mean, worship was going downhill. It was going downhill fast. Uh, They were offering uh, stolen animals. Uh, they were offering lame animals. They were offering sick animals. I mean, they're just finding anything they could find. Probably a dead animal laying by the side of the road already. And the Lord said in verse 13, no, that, that, that's not acceptable. That's wrong. It is, in fact, a curse. You heard that again when Larry read today, verse 14. It said, cursed, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what's blemished. Promising one thing and delivering another. Oh, I could go on a big tangent and talk about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament because they said they were going to bring one thing to the Lord and they brought a lesser thing and God struck them dead. That's what God thinks about careless worship. So you can see clearly why this morning I think we need to deal with the curse of careless worship. Now, I'm not saying that in an accusatory sense. I'm not saying that we have been practicing that at Restore. In fact, I'd say, no, we haven't been. And thank God. But I want to encourage us to go even deeper, perhaps in some ways, than before. So this morning, we want to talk about the origin. And where where did this start? How did did this go? Because I think in some churches, you kind of wonder sometimes, how did they go from here to there? Well, sometimes it's a very slow ride. But we also need to think about the essence of careless worship. What does it actually look like? And then about the, what is the opposite of it? So let's talk about the origin of careless worship. Where does it begin? Well, Malachi leaves absolutely no doubt whatsoever where this began. He said it's the failure to see and feel the absolute greatness of God. It's the failure to see, remember that word, Lord of hosts. We spent some time talking about that last week. The God of all the angel armies, the God who knows every star and has a name for every one of them and remembers every last one of those names. And he makes it clear in two ways. I mean, first of all, he does it by focusing our attention on the greatness of our Lord's sovereign love. And sovereign love is he has this ability to choose to do whatever he wants to. He doesn't need to ask us, you know, what do you folks at Restore think I should be doing for you this week? No. And he, can, he can handle that himself. It doesn't say we can't ask, but that God's sovereign love and the majesticness of his, the greatness of his majestic fatherhood. You may recall the very first thing God says in this book is, I loved you too, says the Lord. And they responded by saying, oh really? How did you love us? I was tempted to say, what a snotty reply. Well, I guess I just did. Now, what does God say to that response? Well, he does not say, well, hold it, folks. I'm the God who forgave you. He didn't say, I'm the God who cared for you. He didn't say, I've been patient with you. I've provided for you. And while all of that is true, what does God call attention to for this careless group of people? Well, that's verses 2 and 3 again, where he said, 
Is not Esau's Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated. Remember, we talked about that he loved him less than Esau. And as we saw, this meant that God chose Jacob and not Esau. He chose the country of Israel and not Edom. In other words, didn't Edom, didn't Esau have as much claim to God's love as did his brother? Yeah. But God says what? But still, I chose him. I chose him. See, there is God's love. It's found in his choices, the choices that he makes. Kind of a grace and awesome sovereignty. And that's why God draws attention first. Uh, then he does the same thing with fatherhood. We read her today. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? Now, again, God could have said, let me tell you about myself. He could draw attention to the fact that he'd been gentle with them. He could have said, I have, I'm tender with you like a, a father or a grandpa even. He, he, he does hear what he did in the case of his love. He focuses attention on the majesty of fatherhood. We're take, going back to that again. And he asks not, where is your affection? What he's asking is, where is my honor? How are you honoring us today in your worship? And then it gets back to careless worship. So God focuses our attention not first on the gentleness of his love or the tenderness of his fatherhood, but on the sovereign freedom of his choices and the majesty of his fatherhood. We're actually going to sing a song with that title a little bit later. Majesty. Majesty. But the second thing God shows the origin of careless worship in verses 11 to 14, and each of these verses gives us a reason why God doesn't like careless worship. Now, verse 11 is really connected with verse 10. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I fear sometimes today that the church, rather than putting the name of Jesus out front and saying what we believe and why we believe it, we have been beaten back to the point where we just want to not say much about anything anymore to defend what rights God has truly given us as our Heavenly Father and not the government. So much for my political comment for the day. In other words, careless worship is so reprehensible because it fails to acknowledge the greatness of God. That's why you could also sing the song, How Great Is Our God. Could have sung that one today, too. Maybe we got it up, but we couldn't. Never mind. The same logic comes up when we kind of try to connect verse 13 and 14. It says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what's blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. In other words, the origin of careless worship here is a failure to see God's greatness. And the one seeing it, feeling God's greatness. Now, how does that cause careless worship? Well, I think Malachi's answer is, it makes a person bored with God and excited about the world. And I think all of us probably slip into that every once in a while. If you don't see the greatness of God, all you see are the things that money can buy. If we, you know, if you can't see the sun, guess what? You'll you'll be... You'll be pretty impressed with the street light. And if you've never seen lightning and thunder flash across the skies of Branson, uh, you're going to just be 
enamored with fireworks. And in the same way, if you turn your back on the greatness and the awesomeness and the majesty of God, you're going to fall in love with this world over and over again with all the short-lived pleasures. That's why God says here in verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. Can you imagine? Well, I probably said this in my life. You know, my grandma and grandpa who raised me. Time to get up and go to church. Oh, then I'm going to go do that again. I'm just tired. I've been there Sunday after Sunday. Why do I need to go again? Weariness. I'm tired of it. I don't know. Have you ever been that way? Am I the only one? Nope. Okay, thank you. Uh, but, you know, what a weariness this is. He actually says, you snort us, says the Lord. But they're just bored with God. Now, when we become so blind that the, the maker of the galaxies, uh, the ruler of the nations, the knower of all mysteries, uh, the lover of our souls becomes boring, there's only one thing left. It's called the world. It's called the world. Why? Because your heart, my heart, is, is always restless. It's always looking for something to latch on to. And if it's not in heaven, guess where your heart will attach? It'll attach to earth. So when it's time to bring a sheep from the flock to sacrifice, what do you bring? Well, you find a sheep that you can steal. You find one that's got a broken leg or he's got some sort of a disease. Now, why would you do that? I don't know if you thought about it. He said, this is what you've been doing. Why would a person do that? I think it's pretty obvious. The good sheep sells better, and the love of money is more than your love of God. So there you go. That's the origin of careless worship. It's a failure to see and to feel the greatness of God. Well, as I go to the essence, essence of careless worship, what does it look like inside when you think about this? The essence of, worship, of careless worship is worthless religious activity that illustrates how little a person actually values God. Verse 10 says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. That's interesting. In vain. Now, there's a, that's a little itty-bitty Hebrew word here. And there's, a, there's a lot of stuff behind this. In vain carries a lot of freight with it. The Hebrew word is hinnom. Hinnom. It's used, for example, and it's probably explained a little bit better in 1 Samuel 24, 24, uh, but it's still translated in a fuller way. It's the same word. In 1 Samuel, it's the story about King David who needs to uh, offer a sacrifice in order to avert having a plague in his kingdom. And to do so, he needs a so-called high place where he can build an altar uh, uh, they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So he's looking for some guy who's got a threshing floor. You remember that from the book of Ruth, the high hill. And he's got, there's a guy there by the name of Arona who owns that threshing floor. It's the right place. And Arona actually says, you can have the floor and you can have the animals for sacrifice and I'm charging you absolutely nothing. It's free. And this is where David fires back in this verse. He said, no, but I'll buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, Hinnom, 
there's that Hebrew word, which costs me nothing. See, in other words, I value God so much. That's what David is saying, that the sovereign freedom of his love, the majesty of his fatherhood are so satisfying to me, I cannot bring myself to worship in a way that makes, makes it look like I value money more than God. That's kind of what he's saying. So it needs to cost something. It must express that he and not the world is our treasure. So the essence of careless worship is just empty religious activity. Well, then we should ask, well, what's the opposite of that? Okay, enough about that. <laughs> what does it look like if it's done the right way? What, what's the opposite of careless worship? Well, this raises the whole question of the excellence of worship. Uh, but then you might say, well, what's excellence? What's excellence? But before you can answer that, you have to define what the nature of true worship really is all about. Let me give you a couple of examples. What is the nature? First of all, it expresses the feeling of God's value again. I mean, how valuable is God to you? It expresses the greatness of God. The second thing, it, it seeks to sustain in the gathering of God's people that same spiritual sense of God's immense worth and beauty. And to put it another way, um, true worship comes from a heart where God is treasured above all human property. But what is excellence? Well, before you answer that, you have to define what the nature of worship is. God's greatness. It seeks to sustain in the gathering of God's people that same spiritual sense of God's immense worth and value. So it comes from a heart that says God is more important than anything else in this whole wide world. So we ought to ask the question, too, what is excellence in worship? Well, I'm going to be more general as we close, um, but I want to describe three dead ends of worship. And then one street that I think will guide us, and I pray will guide us in our future here at Restore. And here's the first dead end. The first dead end is cool professionalism. And I don't want to, I'm not here to blast any form of worship, but I've been there. (laughs) I've seen that. It's a dead end because it defines excellence mainly in terms of technique and forgets that performances performances do not express the, the true feeling of God's worth, but rather exalts the musicians and the singers and everything else. And uh, it takes away a God-centered approach to worship. No matter how technically perfect that worship service might be. There's, there's the second thing, the dead-end street of what I call warm emotionalism. This is a dead-end street because it focuses on feelings. It, 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 it digs at our feelings. It short-circuits understanding. It, it manipulates by stirring up what I call natural enthusiasm. You can, you can whip a crowd into frenzy. I remember when we lived in Hong Kong, we once saw Rod Stewart in concert. We were at the... Uh, Hong Kong Junior Rugby Football Stadium. Nancy and I had uh, seats like in the third row. We stood on our chairs the entire night <laughs> because everybody else ran down to the barricades in front of the stage in order to see Rod Stewart. But I, I was enamored by two things. One was how much beer that guy drank on stage that night. But the other thing was how he could manipulate that group. He could move here and there, the whole crowd would move there. And all they had to do was walk over here in the entire crowd. I mean, everybody took their eyes. It was manipulative. In fact, it's to the point where you're almost mesmerized by watching him 
and not even thinking anymore about what it was singing or saying. See, it neglects the centrality of God and the extensive teaching that needs to go behind. There's a third way, a third dead end. It's kind of laid-back spirituality. This is not quite a dead-end street because there's a genuine spiritual feeling for the worth of God and as you go, but as you kind of go down the street, thinking about God, you're constantly distracted because of indifference or um, inattention to the spirit of the moment. Um, you're, you're watching for shortcomings in the worship service. Did the pastor make a mistake? Did he say the same passage twice? Did, did, did Mary Evelyn repeat a verse that didn't show up on the screen? You know, and we kind of, you know, we're like, we're doing our spiritual thing by judging the worship service and how it goes. And don't tell me none of you have ever done that. Been there, done that. I'm a professional church attender. And when I go to worship, there are times when I judge what's going on. And I know better than to do that. And I have to kind of give myself an internal dope slap and tell myself, cut it out. You're here to worship. See, when you go down that street of laid-back spirituality, it's indifference. But the street that has the greatest promise is what I would call conscientious spirituality. That's a big, big wad right there. What I have in mind is worship that really comes from a feeling of the greatness of God and that seeks to humbly, humbly express it and inspire that same kind of intensity for God. And it's at this point that when I rewrote all my message, I thought, where could I find out some great examples of that? Well, cue the book of Psalms. Thank you, Jesus. Here's just a few of them. Psalm 32, 11. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Uh, Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Uh, Psalm 81, 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Psalm 95, 2. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And then one last one, Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Yeah. I could go on and on, but the point is clear. Exaltation is the heartbeat of God's, God's people. So what would be worship that would be focused on God? I'm going to give you three G's. And I had to have Anthony's... Anthony had this to the outline this morning. And I'm going to give you three words, and the words are gravity, gladness, and gratitude. Let me explain those words. Gravity. I think we need to sing songs, or we should sing songs that invite our hearts to the light in God's attributes and in his deeds. We've already done that. Lord, take us back to the heart of worship. We're going to do that when we sing majesty. We're going to do that when we sing another song. All of these kinds of things. And so leaders, whether it be Mary Evelyn, whether it be myself, whether it be Jeff, I don't care who it is, that somehow leads it. Or when we say, would somebody uh, pray today, whoever that person is, they should lead those prayers of praise and confession because God is honored when we actually uh, adore him directly in prayer and in song and all of those things, as well as, as well as when we mourn or plead for God's mercy. But there's a certain gravity in all of that. The second G is gladness. I mean, our gathering should reflect the life-altering reality that Jesus is risen. 
I'm tempted sometimes. I'm tempted to do an Easter service like this sometime. When everybody gets in, I say, "Good morning, happy Easter. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. See ya." And walk out the front door. Gladness. When the prodigal sons and daughters of Restore uh, meet at the father's banquet table, like Luke 15 says, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad. Kind of cool this morning to see a few people smiling out there. And there's gratitude. Gratitude is just magnifying greatness. It begins with a proclamation uh, of biblical truths about God. And it ends with the expression of deep and holy affections turning toward God. In the book of Ephesians, Paul was writing in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a prescription for worship right there. Maybe we should adopt that at the beginning of our service. This is why we're here today. Remember what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. See, we gather, and then God sets our wayward course back to where it needs to be, which is toward himself. And, of course, the right, com- the right combination of gravity and gladness and gratitude will look different in different cultures. I preached in I don't know how many different countries around the world and in prison, how many different kinds of churches. And this kind of worship looks different in some places. I preach in a Zulu church in South Africa. Holy moly, did these people dance the entire time. But boy, they were dancing to the Lord. I mean, they were there to worship. It, it almost, it, you know, I, I'm just kind of standing with a few other white guys kind of going, this is amazing. I wonder what happened if we took this back to Lord of Life. Well, that kind of stuff doesn't play at Lord of Life. <laughs> it might have. I'm not sure. Yeah, probably would have at Lord of Life. Maybe not at Trinity, but Lord of Life. Yeah, so, um, you know, there's the right amount of things to do. Um, But, you know, we become what we worship. If we serve idols, we end up like them. We become powerless, um, worthless. But as as a church, uh, we need to be uh, gathering together because the true God shows up or desires to show up through uh, corporate worship that's characterized by a certain sense of gravity, solemnity, if you will, awe. There's another good word, or gladness. We're all happy to be here, not just because we're getting free food today. Although next Sunday you can come, we'll have free food. It's called communion and gratitude. We're just happy, clappy to be here because it's a gathering of God's people who, who just so want to worship their God and elevate his greatness. And, and for a moment in time to be apart from this silly world, that is forgotten about the awesomeness of our God. And I didn't say go so far as that, but it ought to inspire us to make sure that we share who that awesome God with is with as many people as we possibly can. See, to put it another way, we become what we worship. If we serve idols, we're going to end up like an idol. Um, powerless, purposeless, worthless. But my prayer is that we continue to learn how to worship and restore. Uh, and I just pray that the Lord of hosts will continue to open our eyes to his greatness. Let's do away with careless worship and instead exalt our Father in heaven.